0: It's been a heavy uh, month for the church. We've we've had some uh, some death and families in the church um, most most notably on the 12th of this month we lost Clarence Larson who's been part of this church for over four decades uh, a, a very faithful man of God in this church. and so last week we studied death and dying, just as a way of helping us process that on the first Sunday after his passing. And I don't know about you, but I'm not quite ready to move on, not quite ready to jump back into our study of the post-exilic texts of scripture, as they are, you know, of course, a powerful section of scripture, but they're not exactly helping me process the things of the month, helping us process the things of the month. I'm not quite ready to, to move on, not sure that you ever really move on when there's a death in the family? This week I was drawn to the text of 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we read this, these great verses. It's verse 7 and verse 8, and it says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Clanky was a great example to us of one who had fought the faith, had fought the good fight, had finished the course, one who kept the faith to the very end. He, 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 kept, he kept on that course that was set before him. He lived life well. Uh, much like the saying, Clanky was a man for all seasons. In fact, this is the title of my sermon this morning, A Man for All Seasons, and you'll see in the text of 2 Timothy chapter 4, a a reference to all seasons, and you'll understand that chapter. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Last week I offered a topical sermon on the subject of dying and death. This week I will exposit the fourth chapter of, of 2 Timothy. We'll move verse by verse through it. You know, the last time that I saw Clarence, he was in the hospital. He had been in the hospital for some weeks suffering, had some close calls. In fact, one time they resuscitated him. And during my visits, when I would sit with him in the hospital, he wanted to have the scripture read. He wanted to just hear the Bible. And so I would sit there, and we read through whole books of the Bible, and I'd read, and he would reflect on the passage and tear up and give thanks to God, and we talk about the scriptures and talk about the Lord, and I'll treasure those memories forever. I treasure the promise of 2 Timothy chapter 4 that I just read a moment ago to you concerning the future and concerning the crown of righteousness. It is comforting that Clarence is with the Lord above and no longer in a bed in pain below. And yet, and yet, that, that still, it still hurts. It's it's supposed to hurt, just like when your PowerPoint's not working. Where did it go? Um, it's supposed to hurt. We lost a, a brother, a family lost a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather. He will forever be missed. And as we process, there's no better place to be than in the house of the Lord together. There's no better place to be than in his word together. And so that said, I hope that you have made your way to the fourth chapter of Second Timothy. We're gonna move through it, as I said, verse by verse. And so let me give you some context before I jump into the text. Second Timothy is a letter. Second Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul around 64 A.D. to his ministry partner and good friend Timothy. This is not the first letter that Timothy has received from Paul. No doubt there were many of them. Two of them are in our Bible as authoritative texts for Christ's church. And it's no surprise that they are included. In the canon of scripture as they are filled with rich theology directions for the church and practical advice for church leaders perhaps one of the reasons my mind was drawn to this text isn't just the promise of of the one who has finished the course who has kept the faith not just the promise of the future and the crown of righteousness but perhaps one of the reasons why my mind was drawn to this text for us this morning is this text is, is, a, is a letter that was written by Paul when he was on his deathbed of sorts. This, these are his, his final words uh, th- that, that he's giving, that we have in terms of, of his corpus. These are some of the final writings of the Apostle Paul before he died. When death is knocking on our door, it has a way of reminding us what is important to us. In, in fact, our final actions before we die often reflect what is most important and what is most precious to us. If you knew that you had just this week to live, if you knew that you were going to die this week, no doubt you would do some fun things. You would scratch some things off the bucket list or whatever. But surely you would use your time to be with those you love. For believers, you would spend ample time in the worship of God and the fellowship of the saints, and no doubt. You would spend ample time evangelizing those who are lost if it was your last week. In Paul's case, he didn't know if he had a week left. He was unjustly incarcerated at the time of this letter, writing from a prison cell that was guarded by Roman soldiers who were known for their oppression, known for their racism of Jewish people, known for their hatred of Christians. And Paul was both. He was a Jewish Christian. Sleeping with one eye open and watching your back would be a good idea for him in that jail cell. Why was Paul in jail? Well, most likely it was due to the instigation of a man named Alexander, who we will in fact study this morning. We read also in 2 Timothy 4, but also in Acts 19 of this man, and I'll say more about this man when we get to him in the text of 2 Timothy 4. But by way of context, before we jump in, Paul is in jail. These are his final words. He's chained inside of a Roman dungeon on death row, awaiting execution by the state. Paul manages to get a piece of parchment, and he writes out this letter to Timothy. While death was coming his way, Paul was focused not on the oppressive injustices of Rome, but on the justice of God in Christ to issue a non-guilty verdict for his people. More than a mere forensic wave of the hand of a divine judge, God not only has cleared our guilt by issuing this non-guilty verdict but he has also taken our shame he has adopted us into his family this this is the good news that through the eternal son who became a man sent of the father through the son we become sons and daughters of the father above this is amazing news this is why it's called gospel because gospel means good news In second timothy paul tells timothy don't be ashamed of the good news Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul also tells him, don't be ashamed of my imprisonment. You see, incarceration in Rome was a shameful thing. There was stigma attached to it. It would be embarrassing to have a friend or a family member in in prison, someone you love in prison. You might feel uh, ashamed of that. Uh, and, And so Paul says, don't be ashamed of me for where I am. Don't be ashamed of my imprisonment. You see, the believers wore that as a badge of honor for Christ was worthy to suffer for. When you love someone, you are willing to suffer for them. When someone is important to you, you will suffer for them. Christ is all that and more. He is important, beloved, precious, powerful, beautiful. We could be here all day describing his worth. And in this letter, Paul describes and praises Christ to Timothy He confronts the distortions of of Christ, the opponents of the gospel, bad teaching, bad living. He writes about it all and more. And he encourages Timothy to be strong in the face of dark days, reminding him of the mission that was given to them by Christ to make disciples who will grow and plant churches throughout Rome to the ends of the earth by the power of the Spirit poured out on God's people who will faithfully herald the gospel that saves people's lives. Draw your eyes to the beginning of the fourth chapter in which Paul emphasizes this service that has been given to us. And that is the first point on the outline, verses 1 through 4. We see Paul speaking of service. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Let's stop right there and look at the richness of this verse the word solemnly charged two words in our english is actually one word in the original greek text dia marturomai let me put it in front of you dia marturomai this is a cognate word of a word martyrone martyrone listen to that word marturone what does it sound like martyron. martyr that's right a martyr is someone who gives their life for a cause in the case of believers, uh, a Christian martyr is one who gives their life for Christ. This is a very serious word. Uh, the way that this, this chapter begins, the way this letter is closing, it, it, has a, it has a seriousness to it. And it ought to. The stakes are high. Dia marturomai. Serious. Scholarly lexicon spill a lot of ink over this. Let me put one in front of you. You can see this entry, dia marturomai is to say something in such a way that the auditor is to be impressed with its seriousness. It is to make a solemn declaration about the truth of something. It is to exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. Paul begins with this word. I have something extremely important to talk to you about. I have a serious charge to make to you. I have an oath that I need to make, and I need to make it in the presence of God and Christ Actually, this phrase "the presence" is not in the original. It says, "I charge you in God." In the original, the preposition "in" in the original Greek, it, it's enopion. Enopion is a much stronger word than mere presence. Our English translation really struggles to to bring it over, so that you see the seriousness of this. Enopion, enopion is, is a is a word of judgment. Enopion. It is used in places in the Bible to speak of standing before God and being exposed to His judgment. Martiron, this is serious, listen. Enopion, we're standing in the presence of God. You see, Paul is charging Timothy by the judgment, by the sight of God. Being in, that preposition in, Enopion, being in front of God and His judgment stands. This is where knees knock. This is where you tremble. This is is where you stand before God Almighty. Jesus is said to be the one who is the judge. God alone is judge. This is clear implication of His deity. He is the judge of the living and the dead, and this will come by His appearing and His kingdom. The appearing and the kingdom is a reference to the return of Christ. The word uh, appearing, epiphane, epiphane is used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus coming back. Epiphane, epiphane opion. he's the judge. You'll stand before him. He's coming back. His appearing, Epiphane, he will punish evil. He will establish a kingdom of peace. And Paul's charge to Timothy is couched in this strong, Christocentric, eschatological judgment language. Further, it's, it's all about service. He's, he's looking at the end. He's, he's looking at what is to come, but he's looking in that, at, at that for the present and the service that is before us. In Revelation chapter 7, we read of the saints who are enopion before the throne of God. So you see, in the presence of God is a fair English translation, but it doesn't give you that, that serious uh, that, that that Paul is writing. Paul's choice of words is much stronger. He charges him before the throne of God. He's calling him to service. We'll see as we continue in this chapter. And what is the service that he calls him to? Verse 2. We read verse 1, look at verse 2. Preach the Word. That's that's the service of the church, to preach the Word. To be ready in season and out of season. This is where I get my title, the man for all seasons. We must be in ready in season and out of season to do what? Preach the Word. What does that look like? Reproving, rebuking, exhorting. Verse 2, doing so with great patience and instruction. To preach is an active imperative. It is a command. It, it, it is something that we must always be ready to do in, in summer, in the winter, in season, and out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, instructing. This is the service of ministry that Christ's church is called to. The only way you could be ready for this is if you are doing this all the time. It must become like and second nature to you at first when you're learning a new language you have to you have to think about how to translate things and think about how it works but when it becomes second nature to you you find yourself now thinking in that language that was once foreign to you and that's when the language flows so too, the word of god it must it must flow like a language that you have acquired it must become a a part of your life and everything that you do so that you can preach it that you you can dispense it. You can only do this if you know the Word of God very well. This is why we gather and we and we study. We want you to know the Word so that you can preach the Word and share the Word as Christ's church in this age. Now the word, Word, that is used here, preach the Word. In the Greek it is the word logos. It, it, it's keruksan logon, it says in the original language here. He is telling them to preach the Word. Word or to preach the Scripture. Now, at this point, at this point, we're in 60s A.D. At this point, the Bible of the church was largely what we refer to as the Old Testament. At this point, the New Testament was being written. A lot of it had been written, and uh, more of it was to come in the first century. So, you know, we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Christian New Testament. So the Christian New Testament was in the process of of being written at the time. So when he says preach the word, the church's word was the Old Testament. However, the word that he uses here for word went beyond just preaching the Old Testament, it included the apostles' teachings. If you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you see that was very clear in the early church that they were committed to the word and the apostles' teachings. The apostles teachings the new testament were on par with the old testament the old testament is revealing the shadows of of christ and revealing the redemptive plan of god that the new testament picks up that christ fulfills hence the word word here that is used would include both the old and the new paul is saying preach the full counsel of god look at how the word word is used in the preaching of the scriptures According to Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the Word is a ministry. Acts 6, 4, you see that? We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. According to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, the Word is something to be preached. Let me put that in front of you. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. According to Acts 17, verse 11, the Word is something to be received. Let me put that in front of you. Now there were those who were noble-minded. They received the Word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Notice how Acts 17, ties the Scriptures to the Word. It is clear that the Word involves the New Testament, for in their preaching they searched the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, to test the message that they were bringing the new testament message all of this to say the charge is preaching the bible the full counsel of god and that is very clear paul says this not as 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 advice he says this as command using the sobering language that we've already discussed it's standing before jesus who is the judge standing before jesus and in, in opion Martiron, epiphane he's in his appearing in his kingdom Paul is not messing around when he says, "Preach the Bible." He invokes this command in the presence of none other than Christ the Judge. Now, tragically, we have many pulpits in this country, in this earth, who are doing anything and everything besides this. We have so-called Christian preachers and Christian churches who are not preaching Christian Scripture. Instead, they're they're giving you little TED talks. They're telling you stories about themselves. They're they're telling you how you can be a better you. They're telling you how you can you know, uh, uh, find prosperity and health and wealth and be more happy. They're self-help preachers. They, they preach positive thinking and pop psychology. They tell you a bunch of hoopla to entertain you. And they have the audacity to sprinkle Bible verses on top and lead people astray. They do not do what verse 2 tells them. There, there is no real doctrinal or biblical instruction they do not reprove, they do not rebuke, they do not exhort, unless it is repuving you for not sowing enough seed money into their latest campaign of nonsense. They'll have the gall to take a paycheck for preaching when they don't even preach. They have the nerve to stand in the pulpit with the Bible open. They stand there and pay lip service to it, if at all, all the while filling you up with yourself, or even worse, they sneak in false doctrine. And you know what? Paul said this would happen. Look at the text, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The time will come when they will not endure. People will want to have anything but true preaching. We are living in this, I believe, like no other generation has. If, if, if someone was, was giving out awards for heretical novelty in our current generation, we would, we would get the, the gold, the platinum every time. You turn on religious broadcasting today, it's a smorgasbord of what Paul is talking about. Ear-tickling and unsound doctrine. They are, they are preaching politics. They are preaching purpose. They are preaching prosperity. But they are not preaching the word. And I I bet later today when I get home and I I get on the internet and start listening to sermons that were preached this morning, I bet bet you bottom dollar there's going to be a lot of politics this Sunday. There's going to be a lot of pontificating on Kenosha. There's going to be a lot of pontificating about uh, what uh, you see on Fox and CNN and this and that and the latest riot and the latest thing and the latest fake news and the latest whatever. And people are going to be preaching that. And sadly, churches will be excited about it, and churches will grow for it. And there will be other preachers preaching the same old, same old prosperity. Give, give, give us your money, and you're going you're to be blessed for it. You know, Preachers flying around in jets and doing all kinds of shenanigans. And if you're like me, you'll have the courage to say something about it. You'll have the courage to call some of it out. You'll have the courage to say names. You'll have the courage to even put up pictures and name names. And whenever I do this, inevitably, I'll have a Christian say, why are you picking on them? I mean, they're good people. Why are you calling their names out? And I say, well, because the Bible does. And that's sort of the problem. When you're not having the Bible preached to you, you don't know what it says, and so you would have a rejoinder like, why are you picking on them? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, look at it. He picks on names. He calls out Johnes and Johnbres. These are men who oppose the truth, Paul says, men of depraved mind who have rejected in regard to their faith. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 of this text. He, Paul names Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mind you, that they are like gangrene spreading around the body. People will counter, yeah, okay, but Hymenaeus, Philetus, I mean, they're not Christians. I mean, don't you, you Pastor Matt, on your little PowerPoint there, you've got some Christian guys up there you got some Christian guys up there. You know, one I want to say, well, how do you know? Right? Well, well he uses the Bible. It's like, yeah, Satan uses the, the Bible and the Word of God as well. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we read that that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. On the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That was what people will say to me, though, but... Look at how big their church is. Look at how big their church is. Look at how it's growing. I saw a lot of churches grow in 2020 and 2021 over getting political and pulpits. A lot of people just flocked to it. Look at how God's blessing them. Look, size does not determine blessing. If I don't see fruit in it, if I don't see God's word being preached, if I don't see the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit and His glorious gospel being heralded, then I, I, I'm sorry, size isn't going to calm me down. If we're judging uh, things by, by size, a pornography convention would be more godly because that draws all kinds of people to it. It's, that's crazy. Of course it's larger. Jesus said before making the comment about the wolves in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, that we are to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter into it. The fact is, big crowds will flock to nonsense. And Jesus warned us of this. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy of this, warned the church of this. This is not to say that there will never be large numbers in good preaching churches. I can think of many good, solid biblical churches that are very large. But there are a handful of these churches, but there are an endless array of examples of those who are large and are doing the ear tickling. And I love that Paul called it out. I love that Paul cautioned the church because when you love, you will make such cautions. The church has to be committed to what it was placed on planet earth for, to herald the gospel of the triune God and to make disciples in him. If if people are to hear our sermons and be upset with us, it ought to be over the gospel and not over the evening news. It ought to be over the message that we herald. That is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it it is our lifeblood. It is our service. This is what we are called to. Secondly, we are called to suffering. Look back at the text, verse 5. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. A drink offering is a libation. It is a symbol of suffering. It is a symbol of loss. The contemporary poet Tupac had a song, Pour Out a Little Liquor. It reflects on losing loved ones. It, you pour out a little alcohol on the curb. Pour a little 40 out on the curb, and you think about your friends who died. That's not just Tupac. That's the Apostle Paul. Pouring out libation. It was a part of their culture to pour out alcohol and, and remember those who had deceased. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. It's, 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 it's a euphemism for dying for Paul. I'm suffering. I'm suffering. He's in a jail cell. Remember the context. I'm suffering. He's on death row. Remember the context. But his pain won't stop him from pressing to the very end. Like a skilled runner, Paul is pushing himself to the, to the very end. His legs are giving out. His lungs are giving out. But he just keeps pushing to the very end. And there's a feeling that he has that in fact he has finished, he says. Draw your eyes at verse 7. For I have fought the fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He he feels that he has finished. If you've been a Christian for some time, likely you have had the unfortunate experience of people falling away from the truth. A spouse who cheats and walks away from a spouse and and the church instead of responding to church discipline. We've seen it. A, A man who was once faithful and present but gets sucked into a cult and pulls his family out of church and trolls on social media with nonsense trying to suck other people into it. We've seen it. As well, if you've been a Christian for some time, you will see people who don't fall away from the faith per se, but they'll fall away from the mission of their local church. They never bring anyone to church, let alone do they share the good news of God in Christ. They they never give. They don't serve, let alone would they suffer. Paul suffered, and he served to the very end. And in Acts, we see him in jail, sharing the gospel in jail. In 2 Timothy, we see him in jail, using what energy he has to pour out his heart in this letter to encourage the church at the end of his ministry, he was like the Energizer bunny, still going and going and going and going. I realize saying that, there's probably young people who don't know what that is, but it's just, uh, just something that keeps going, the Energizer bunny. Uh, it's something that doesn't need a USB uh, port to charge, right? As a result, he has this confidence that what awaits him is not only heaven, but rewards. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is, there is not time to give a full theology of rewards here, but succinctly, let me say that the Bible has much to say about what we do in this life and its ramifications for the afterlife. In death, we do not escape our deeds. We will be rewarded. We will be punished. Of course, for the believer, our punishment has been taken by Christ. It's been nailed to the cross. Our, our guilt and our shame has been lifted. The ultimate punishment of, of, of death and of hell has, has been covered for us in Christ. He suffered in our place. He took the bullet for us. The Father rendered us a, a non-guilty verdict, and we were guilty. We deserve punishment But the Christ, the Son of the living God, has paid that for us. Nevertheless, there is still, in the afterlife, there is still judgment for the believer. It's a non-condemning one, but there's still a judgment for the things that you do in this life. And, And with judgment, there is also reward. I'll say more about punishment a little bit later, but I want to emphasize what is before us, and what is before us is reward. What is before us is this man who has finished the course, this man who has... Kept the faith, this man who has a crown of righteousness, a reward. Jesus taught a theology of rewards. Look up here and let me show you Luke chapter 6. Turning his gaze towards his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil. For the sake of the Son of Man, be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul specifies the reward that awaits. He calls it the crown of righteousness. The imagery of the crown in in verse 8 fits the imagery of the course in verse 7. Let me say that again. The imagery of the crown in verse 8 fits the imagery of the course in verse 7. The word for course, dramos, is a word that is used in the ancient world for a place of running. Dramos is a a stadium. It's uh, the new crypto, right? Uh, The the staples. It's a stadium. If you haven't heard, they're changing the name. Uh, It's a stadium, a dramos. In the Greco-Roman culture, the one who wins in the dramos is given a crown. You get a crown when you win in the dramas. The athletes in the Olympic Games at that time were given a crown that was made of olive branches. Uh, We would just call it a wreath, not so much a crown. Paul says there's a wreath of righteousness that awaits him. he's, He's using athletic imagery. It could be military imagery as well, because military victors would receive a wreath. But because Paul talks about the course, it seems more fitting that it's an athletic imagery. Paul's wreath is not the award of corrupt state powers or the award of some competition. It is the crown of righteousness that is given by a holy and righteous Lord. Might I add, it is a coveted crown. Uh, Not everyone gets to run into dramas. Not everyone gets a a, a wreath, a a crown. In the ancient world, those, those wreaths were highly coveted. In Hollywood, it would be like getting a star on the boardwalk. It's like an Emmy. It's like a Grammy. Very few people get them. Few deserve them. Paul has confidence that this crown awaits him. Mind you, what is exciting about the crown that awaits him is not that he gets to walk around heaven wearing it. Check out my crown, you know. Everyone's like, ooh, can I, can I wear it? No, no, no. Come on, man, we're going to be in heaven forever. Just let me wear it for a couple weeks. It doesn't matter. We're, we're here forever. Let me borrow it. It's not that he gets to walk around and floss on everyone with his crown. We see in the book of Revelation that the saints in this life Who are rewarded with crowns in heaven you know what they do with them they lay them at the feet of the lord revelation chapter 4 when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever and the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying what worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. They cast their crowns before the throne. Unlike our earthly medals that we keep inside of cases, they, they, they don't do that. They bring them to their king. You see, you see, the reward is for the king. It's for him. That is why we want reward in this life, so that in the life to come we can go before the incarnate Lord like the magi and bring these great gifts these crowns. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand empty-handed before my king after all that he has done for me. I want to have crowns to lay at his feet. I want to, I want to praise him. I want to honor him. I want to, I want to have that reward so that I can, I can lay it down before him. And as we read the text, we see Paul urging them to use their time that they too would be in such a position. Make every effort. Verse 9 says every effort to come to me soon verse 10 for demos having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to thessalonica crescens has gone to galatia titus to Dam- dalmatia only luke is with me verse 11 pick up mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service verse 12 but Tychicus i have sent to ephesus verse 13 would you come bring a cloak that i left at troas with Carpus and the books Bring the books, especially the parchments. So we move from serving and suffering now to the third point on your outline, supplies. Paul wants supplies for the mission. He wants books. He wants uh, a scrolls, rather. When we think of, of, of a book, we think of our modern sort of binding. This would have been a scroll. He wants his scrolls. He wants to study. He wants to write, and so he wants parchment. Paul knew that the pen was mightier than the sword. Indeed, his own writings, inspired by God, would shake the empire as the church triumphant continued. And the key to triumph was resources. If you are going to preach the word, you need to have the word. So bring the word to me. Bring me copies of the scripture. And we don't know exactly uh, what was on these scrolls. It's safe to say these are copies of scripture. Perhaps these are gospel accounts, some scholars think. Along with the books that Paul asks for, he also asks for his cloak. It's easy to skip over this, but this is important. The ministry needs more than intellectual supplies. We need more than books and paper. We need physical supplies as well. Paul was a tough dude, but he still got cold. He needed his jacket. Ministry requires caring for tangible needs. Throughout Paul's writings, we see him gathering offerings so that the church could care for the needs of the ministry. The church would gather offerings for, uh, you know, in order to provide for the poor. There's alms for the poor. But also to gather offerings so that the ministers of the gospel can keep on mission and can devote their time to training and multiplying believers for the spread of the gospel. Paul himself uh, gathered these offerings, and Paul himself worked side jobs. He worked as a tent maker, we know, to fund more ministry. They took their money and used it for ministry. They would not let the church be behind. They were constantly sharing and supplying these things. Along with caring for the tangible needs and having access to books and parchment, Paul was also supplied by relationships. He speaks of Luke being with him. He asked for Timothy to come to him. He tells Timothy to bring Mark on the way. You know, go grab Mark and bring him. This is actually a, a, a really cool piece of scripture here because we know that earlier if this mark is john mark we know that earlier they had a falling out in acts 15 uh mark was brought to paul by barnabas on his second missionary journey and paul didn't want to take mark with him because he deserted their team on the first missionary journey he's like nah you i'm not gonna roll with you buddy paul was not gonna roll with mark and here you see in second timothy if this is the same mark that there was a reconciliation that took place there was a, a, a proving that Mark had done to say, no, no, no I, I made a mistake that time, but, but, but I, and I was wrong about that, but forgive me, let's get back on mission together. And their relationship was mended. These relationships were, were critical for supplying ministers in the gospel, that they would be encouraged in these relationships so that they would have, next point on your outline, support. Notice in the text that Paul speaks of these men who supported him and he also speaks of men who discouraged and opposed him. In verse 10, he speaks of Demas, who deserted him. This is a sad reality of ministry in the Christian life. If you've uh, been a Christian long, you, you know that there will be people who will be there, and then there will be people who are not there. They'll be gone. Jesus prepared his disciples for this. In the Gospel accounts, we see Jesus teaching the disciples about the narrow road, about the, the seed and how the seed is snatched up about counting the cost, about carrying the cross, about leaving it all behind, about severing even relationships because your relationship with the church is most important, and, and warning His disciples. There's going to be some who come in and, and they're going to fall off, but but you keep going and, and keep supporting one another. Paul was trained by Jesus. He was prepared for this. He was, He was prepared to have times where you feel alone. But being prepared, of course, doesn't mean that those feelings don't hurt and those feelings don't weigh you down. No doubt they do. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, we, we see uh, with regard to Demas, who we're looking at right now, we see that at one time, Paul and Demas were actually really good friends. They were more than friends. They were co-laborers in the gospel. He ends the, the letter of Philemon, look at this, noting Demas' partnership. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Philemon 24, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. You see, as he's closing his letter, he he notes him. Demas is a fellow worker. He's right there with Luke. Luke wrote most of the New Testament. He's the, the most profound author in the New Testament, just in terms of volume that was put out. I mean, he's right next to Luke. Are you kidding me? As well in the closing letter to the Colossians, we see that Demas was a beloved brethren. Colossians 4, 14 and 15. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha and the church that is in her house. You see, you, you see, Demas was, was once walking with, in relationship with Paul. Notice in 2 Timothy, Paul doesn't describe Demas's falling out as apostasy or Or heresy, it's not like how John said in his letter, you know, they went out from us because they were not of us. Paul doesn't say Demas uh, walked away and joined some Gnostic cult or started denying Jesus or anything like this. What does Paul say of Demas here in 2 Timothy? He says he loved this present world. And so he deserted. Now, it, it doesn't say he deserted the faith. It's in, it's indicating he deserted the church, he deserted the church's mission field, because he loved this present world. He was a fair weather follower. There's a saying that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. But whereas for Demas, when it got tough, he was like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. You know, Paul's always getting locked up in jail and stuff like that. I'm I'm not. You know, I didn't sign up for this. I'm I'm through with this. You know. I, I, I'm, I'm moving out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Easy Street. I, I'm, I'm moving on up. i, I got to get out of this, you know. Maybe he found a, a quiet section of Rome where the church wasn't persecuted as hard, a place where it was easier. He just hide out and kick it. You know, his, he had a reputation. He could go somewhere where it was calm. He loved the present world. He wasn't living for the, the epiphaniae, the world that is to come the appearing of the Christ, he was living for this present world. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we see that he left Paul at a, at a time when he was greatly needed as well. Verse 14 starts with, Alexander the coppersmith did much harm. Who is this guy? Well, he's a coppersmith, we know that, right? Um, how, how did he harm Paul? Well, verse 15 answers how. Look at verse 15. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. How did he harm Paul? He vigorously opposed him. Alexander was opposing Paul. He was opposing the teaching of the word. He was opposing the message of the gospel. I wish I could say that I've uh, personally never experienced such a thing, but that happens in ministry. Churches will experience this. It, it, it happens not just in, in ministry, it happens in just regular old life. People who aren't even Christians, I mean, you're going to have people oppose you. That's, that's just a part of life. These sorts of things happen. And Paul is facing this, and as if it wasn't hard enough, having people oppose you, having friends leave you while all of that is going on as insult to injury. So we see how, uh, by opposing, but again, who? Who is this Alexander. Well, we know he's a coppersmith. The text tells us that. And it's clear that, that Paul knows that Timothy knows who this guy is, so he doesn't have to elaborate. We're removed, and so we've got to kind of piece some things together. Uh, this Alexander could be the Alexander that is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll put that text in front of you, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. And, and there you read about this Alexander who was handed over to Satan so as to be taught not to blaspheme. Alexander in 1 Timothy was one who was under church discipline. There's also another Alexander that we read about in Acts 19. Alexander, the Ephesian Jewish man, uh, and he starts a riot. I'll put that text in front of you. There's a riot in the town. It's crazy like Kenosha. People are going to start burning stuff and acting crazy. Divides are going to happen. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be pain. There's going to be appeals to authorities. People are going to go to court over this. Make a defense before the city assembly to shut down Paul, to shut down the disciples. Acts chapter 19 verse 33 mentions Alexander going before the court, going before the assembly to shut down the church. We read in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, or, or verse 16 here, chapter 4 verse 16, at my first defense no one supported me. So this fits the Alexander in, verse nine, in Acts 19 who takes them before the, the court and starts making a, a defense for shutting down the church. Paul here in verse 16 talks about that defense. The Alexander in First Timothy could be the same Alexander, or these could be different Alexanders. In any case, uh, you know when you, when you hear Alexander it probably gave Paul a little PTSD. This guy was causing him some problems. That first defense, verse 16, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, he says in verse 16. Paul Paul, uh, speaks of this formal defense that sounds like Acts 19 that I put in front of you. Paul speaks of feeling all alone and being deserted. Paul, uh, by grace, says, you know, but forgive them, Lord. Uh, Just like our Lord when he suffered on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. When our Lord was abandoned by his disciples, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He would go and he would gather them and pour his love on them. Paul says, may it not be counted against them. Alexander's beef was ultimately not with Paul, though. It was with God. Draw your eyes back at verse 14. It says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. There is judgment for Alexander. For the churchmen who Paul. Paul. Paul says, oh Lord, don't hold that against them. But there is a judgment for Alexander, for he opposed the gospel. Earlier we saw a theology of reward. We talked about the crown of righteousness that is laid up. Uh, here we see a theology of repayment. I said earlier I wanted to focus on reward, but I made mention of punishment. And here you see that, the, the punishment language. He will be repaid. Alexander will be judged. Those who oppose ministers of the word and servants of Christ's mission will be held accountable. Though everyone abandoned Paul, his Lord did not. Look at verse 17 in the text. But the Lord stood with me and and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul did not tap out because he wasn't relying on his own strength. He was relying on the Lord's strength. The text says it was was the Lord who strengthened him, the Lord who rescued him from the lion's mouth. This is very likely a reference to Nero and the Roman powers that Alexander was using to try to suppress Paul like the media powers of our day that cancel and control the narrative, the enemies of Paul wanted to get him canceled. They wanted to get his YouTube channel taken down. At the least, they wanted to discourage him from producing YouTube content and continuing the mission with the saints, which brings us to the final point, the saints. We've seen suffering and serving and supplying and supporting. Lastly, we see the power of the saints Though Paul had haters around him, though he had trolls commenting on his words and his work, Paul was not alone. Though he had been deserted, he was not alone. Like Elijah in 1 Kings 19 who felt alone, but God reminded Elijah that he was not alone, for God had reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees had not bowed down to Baal. Here again, God reminds his servant, you're not alone. By inspiration of the Spirit, Paul goes on to write of the saints, although not with him like Elijah in that cave, were nonetheless with him on mission. Verse 19, greet Prisca, Aquila, the house of, of, of Onisphorus, Erastus, remain at Corinth, stay on mission, you keep going, bro. Erastus, remain at Corinth, Trophimus, I, I, I had to leave him at Miletus, he was sick. Make every effort, verse 21, to come to me before winter. With that jacket too, right? (laughs) Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you. And also uh, Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. These are names to us, but they are faces to Paul. They're friends to Paul. They're family to Paul. Further, they're co-laborers in the gospel. I mean, we i love i love these sections where where you have these names and you could just insert and think in our, in our, in our own congregation you know greet uh James and Jenna greet the the household of the Boatangs you know um uh, Dolan stayed in Del Rey uh send send over the dailies uh we put them in Miletus. i guess you guys are sick uh and then we you know uh Lucy says hi you know Clara and Mario, and and you, know, and you just insert names in there. You go, oh my gosh, this is, a real, this is real life. These are real people. They're just names to us, but this is family to Paul. These are co-laborers to Paul. They are sacrificing with Paul to spread the gospel, to serve local churches, so that there is a witness in those cities. And so those cities then grow and plant more churches around the cities of Rome, and through those cities it trickles out into the highways and the byways and into villages, and it, 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 it trickles out. That, that, Jesus said, you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and they were doing that. That's what they were doing. But it, it, required, it required an army of clankies. It's been in this church four decades. God give us an army of Clankies, give us an army of of Erastuses and Priscas and a, and Aquillas and Claudias and Pudens and Linus. These are gospel workers. This isn't you know you, oh, Paul. He's an apostle. You know he's that's what he's like a big deal. You know that's why he's in jail and you know that suffering and serving and preaching stuff. That's like for the you know big guys or whatever. No no no. Linus and Claudia and Pudens and this is, this is us. This is all of us. This is what we're called to. These are the names of, of, of regular Christians who are sacrificing everything that they have to have a church in that city to proclaim and herald the king who will come and the city that is to come, the Jerusalem of heaven. Their names are written in Scripture. More importantly, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They will be with Paul in the kingdom. And one day their, their names will become known to us when we've been there 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun. We'll bring our, our crowns with Putins and Linus and Onisphorus, and we'll lay them at the feet of, of our king. And we'll say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who conquered the grave. Worthy is the Lamb who took the bullet for us and." conquered death itself so that we can have life everlasting you who hear me this day you can have life everlasting if you cry out to him for forgiveness you confess to him that you have sinned there's not a person in this room there's not a person hearing this who hasn't sinned against god 10 out of 10 people sin and 10 out of 10 people die and the only remedy for death and and judgment it has been had on the cross The one who took it for us. The one who stood in our place. You know what a substitute is. When someone stands in the place for another. When you call in sick and someone else has to stand in your place and do your job that day. There is one who has come who did the job on the cross. And he did something that none of us could do because he was the perfect sacrifice. He was innocent. And he exchanged his innocence for our guilt. And you can have that. You can have that. And you can have the, the hope of his return, that, that great day. Now speaking of that great day and return, it is important to notice that Paul doesn't have his head in the clouds. He's not all, you know, it's not just all heaven. It's, he's concerned about the earth too. Notice that Paul speaks of Trophimus who's sick. He, he cares about what's going on in his life. He cares about his brother who's sick. He makes arrangements. In, in Miletus, for him to stay there. You need to gra- gain strength, brother, and, and he's making sure that guys are cared for. It's worth noting here, given the popularity of the health, wealth, name it and claim it cults, Paul doesn't say, Where is your faith? Claim your healing. You know, uh, no, he doesn't chide Trophimus for being sick or anything like that. The truth is yes, God heals in the power of the name of Jesus. But fools rush in and presume that God is obliged to heal, not Paul. Sometimes you pray for someone to be healed, and they get healed. Other times you pray for people to get healed, and they don't. The prosperity peddlers have apparently skipped this verse. But in any case, it shows us not, not just you know a statement that kind of debunks the, the prosperity preachers, but it shows us a statement about care for people. He's sick. I've got to make sure he's cared for. You know, when people are sick, that's what you do. You make sure they're cared for. When people are in the hospital, that's what you do. You make sure they're cared for. When people are mourning, that's what you do. You, you just mourn with them. You sit with them. You make sure they're cared for. Paul is suffering in jail. Remember the context. This letter, 2 Timothy, is his letter from a Birmingham jail, if you will. It's a prison epistle. And now that we are at the very end of it, notice how he ends. What does he close with? Grace. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. He closes with grace. What is grace? Grace is, is getting what you don't deserve. When you get what you deserve, uh, that, that, that's merit. That's something that you, you, you go to work and you get a paycheck. You get what you deserve. Or you, you, you break the law and, and you, you get the penalty of the law on your back. You get what you deserve. Now, now if you didn't go to work and you sat on the couch all week and someone gave you money for for a job you didn't do, we call that grace. You did nothing and you got it anyway. Now, this is different from mercy. Sometimes you do something that that that's wrong and someone gives you mercy and they go, you know what, I'm gonna give you mercy on this one. Mercy is when you don't get what you did deserve. You deserved a, a punishment, you did you deserved a penalty, you deserved to to have some standards or You know, you deserve to have something taken away from you. Well, I'll give you mercy. I won't take that away from you. Grace takes it further, though. It's not just that I'm not going to give you what you did deserve. I'm going to additionally give you something you didn't deserve. I'm going to give you what you didn't earn. I'm going to give you what you didn't have coming. This is the message of the gospel. We did something. We sinned against God. And what we deserve is punishment. God not only is merciful to His people by saying, I'm not going to punish you with with hell and damnation. I'm going to take that and I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm going to give you the righteousness of the Holy Son of God. His perfect record put into your account. You will have that. That's grace. And that is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table. If you would take the cup that's on your chairs This is a cup of grace, the new covenant of his blood. As you open the top, you come to the bread, which is a symbol of his body. His body that would hang on the cross in our place. His body that would suffer in our place. His body that not only suffered, but was risen from the dead in our place. He is the first fruits of what is to come as he has risen, so too His people will rise. And until that day, His people will gather, and we will eat, and we will remember what He has done for us. Let's eat. And we take the cup. You know, in Scripture, cups are often used as symbols of wrath, of judgment, When he drank this cup, he drank the judgment that belonged to us upon himself. He who knew no sin, the scriptures say, became sin for us. Blood, when it is poured out, means life is gone. He gave his life for us. He gave his life for you, dear friend, listening today. As we drink the cup, we celebrate that gracious gift that was given in our place. Let's drink. I started the sermon today reflecting on our beloved Clanky who passed away. He is one who I firmly believe was granted a crown of righteousness for his faithful service in this mission field that we have before us in the city of Los Angeles. He, like Paul, wanted parchment and scrolls. When I visited him in the hospital, he wanted his scrolls. He wanted to hear the scripture read to him. He was a man for all seasons. He modeled every every point on this outline. Serving, suffering, supplying, supporting, the fellowship of the saints. He modeled all of these points. We are are not left to uh, 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 men from the first century like Paul. We have men among us. We have sisters among us that are living out a life just like this. Paul told Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. I think that's worth uh, 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 something for us to think about as we conclude this message. The work of evangelism in the city. Paul admonished Timothy to this end. Do the work of an evangelist. You see, the the calling of evangelism was not reserved for evangelists. You say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. No, 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 do the work of an evangelist. Everyone is called to this work. Fulfill this ministry. We're called to this work. We've been given a mission field that the Sovereign Lord has placed us in that will require suffering, that will require supplying, it will require giving cloaks and bringing scrolls and parchments and caring for the sick guy over in Miletus and uh, sitting with those who are suffering. It, it, it's going it's to require all of that. And it'll be worth it all when the crown of righteousness is placed at the feet of our Lord. I think of crowns that I've earned, trophies that I've earned over the years. They're all in the attic in a box collecting dust, Little League trophies, Pop Warner trophies, YMCA basketball, uh, academic trophies. They don't mean any they don't mean anything. They're just in a box in the attic. don't mean anything. In fact, we finally just broke down and threw them away. Just took a picture of them. Like, I guess I'll take a picture of it and just chuck it. Like, who, who cares? What, what What? am I stand before God on the day of judgment and show my little league ball from that home run I hit, signed by my coach? None of it matters. What does matter in this life is what we do for our Lord and the life that is to come. We've been called to invest in that investing is when you're storing up for a later day and in this life we often store up thinking of an emergency or something like that i gotta store up in case i'm laid off and we got bills to pay and so we store up thinking that way but you can store up treasures in this life for the life that is to come and again we're doing that not because you know this is the new i don't know everlasting bitcoin or whatever and you're going to make money and you know no no no, because you're going to lay that bitcoin at the feet the lamb who was slain, and it's going to feel so good to bring trophies to the king and to lay them at his feet and say, thank you for all that you have done for me. When someone gives their life for you, you have that, that feeling of indebtedness, but it's not drudgery indebtedness. It's it's not anything that you can ever work to pay off, where even Stephen now, Jesus, you died for me, and I, I did some stuff for you. You you don't work that off. It's, it's a love relationship. You just love him, and you're filled with joy as you serve him, In season and out of season. This is the ministry that we've been called to. And it's a ministry, ultimately, of worship. We we go where his name is not known. We make disciples where there are not disciples. Not for the sake of making disciples, but for the sake of worship. Mission exists where worship doesn't. We want to fill the heavens with his praises. That said, let me pray, and we'll stand and we'll sing some songs to the one who will appear, to the one who will come, to the one who has come, to him be glory. Let's pray. Oh, God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you that while we were sinners, you would die for us, kicking and screaming against you, even mocking you. And, Lord, in our sin, we, we forget that we were that. We like to think that we were not that bad. I'm not that bad. I never killed anyone or whatever. But, Lord, we know that your law hangs over us all. As, as your son taught us, that, that the anger in our hearts is, is, is as bad as murder in your eyes. And we can watch the news and we can see reports of people being murdered or, or killed. And we can act all self-righteous before you. And yet, Lord, your law hangs over us. And your, your anger ought to hang over us but you chose to to quench your anger in the sun. Oh, Father, there's no way that we could pay you back. And it would be foolish of us to think that that we have to pay you because you did it freely. You chose to do it, and you did it in love. We're not in a relationship of you, of running around trying to pay you back. You you gave us a gracious gift, and we're so thankful for that. So now we come in song to offer these praises to you, to give thanks to you for what you have done for us on the cross and and what you are doing in your church. Resource the church, supply the church, strengthen the church, we pray, as you strengthened your servant Paul in that jail cell, and you filled him with so much joy and so much love when he was at such a low place on his deathbed. Lord, give us that kind of joy, I pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.